Morning. Okay, we are still in our prepared series, uh, but we are moving on to Second Peter, which is still a part of that series. Uh, so I'm gonna just, I'm gonna give you a brief recap. There's not a ton of, of of information I have to give you that's different about the audience, other than a little bit of a context. So Second uh, Peter was probably written around 65 to 68 A.D., so right before the death uh, of the Apostle Peter. Uh, now this was written to the same Jewish believers that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, who are you know trying to escape persecution in Jerusalem and were being persecuted by the Romans. So it's the same audience, if you will. Um, and so, you know, the context changes because the first the first letter was mainly teaching them how to be faithful while being persecuted. But Second Peter is still about preparing, but it's about preparing to face false teachers and those who would spread false doctrine is kind of the main uh, topic of this. Specifically, it's kind of a warning against uh, the theology and the lifestyles that these false teachers were living. Uh, and we still have those today. We'll cover that eventually. Now, uh, one of the main issues of false teachers had at that time was they denied the second coming of Christ. They denied that there was a resurrection. And Peter knew that the enemy was just trying to use those false teachers to make people doubt God. Because if they started to believe those false teachers, and if they started doubting the resurrection, that means that Jesus lied. And if Jesus lied, what would the motivation be for serving him? So that's what the enemy was trying to do, is to get him to doubt. And he wanted him to know that this is just a distraction tactic, is all this is, not to fall for it. Uh, but the thing is, when believers defend uh, the truth of God's word, it, I mean, they're not going to be affected by that. They're going to be able to spot that stuff. I used to tell people, listen, if, if you know the truth, it's easy to spot a lie. Like, and there's a lot of things you can fake. But there's no way I could walk into a, you know, a hospital and fake that I knew how to do brain surgery. I mean, there's some things those doctors would be like, yeah, I don't think you belong here. You know what I mean? Uh, I couldn't fool them because they had that knowledge. And likewise, if you just make sure that you're uh, endowing yourself with as much knowledge as possible of the Bible, you're not going to be you know, caught off guard by that stuff. So Peter was basically going to encourage his readers to focus on building their Christian character. Now, I titled today's message, Forged in the Fires of Faith. And there's a reason. Um, there's a reason because that, you know, forging, we've been talking a lot about metallurgists and, uh, and how they would put metal into the fire and get it hot uh, so that they could purify it and get all the, you know, the impurities out of it. But there's another part to that process, and that's forging the metal into whatever you wanted it to be, right? Well, they become more, um, the, the, the metal becomes stronger after it's forged into the shape it's designed to be. Uh, so it's really, really important that you realize that because that's a kind of a, all the way through these books, he keeps making references that lead back to that because our faith is the same way. You know, our faith that has survived the fires of trials and stuff like that is molded into something stronger. Now, that's as quick as I can catch up. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to try to stay close to my outline so I get you all this stuff, but you know, I'm making no promises. Okay, starting in verse 1, it says, uh, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. So you'll notice right off the bat that Peter intentionally reminded his readers that he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ and an apostle. He wanted them to see that, listen, I'm a servant. I know you look to me like a leader. I know you know I'm an apostle, but first and foremost, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He wanted to display humility because one thing you're going to find out there is that the false teachers they had were exceptionally arrogant, especially the ones they were dealing with. 
So he was trying to make a contrast between his humility and their arrogance. Uh, and he, then he reminded them that this was written to believers uh, through Jesus Christ. And the thing that's really, really important was he was trying to direct all righteousness back to Jesus. Because the, self, the, the false teachers were self-righteous. They wanted people to look at them. And if you, listen, that has not died. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can go to still some denominations and churches, and I'm not calling anybody out, but you can go to some of those, and they almost worship their leaders. I mean, they put them up on a high pedestal, and that's the leader's fault. Because the leader should tell them, listen, I am just like you. Uh, I sin, I make mistakes, I have a ministry, and this is my ministry, and your ministry is as important as mine. But, you know, the false teachers weren't doing that, so Peter wanted to make sure he got that out there and explained to him, listen, any righteousness I have is just like you. We get that righteousness from Jesus Christ. Well, then he says, uh, he reminded them that their grace and peace could be multiplied. Okay, and when you hear that, you think, I don't know how that's possible. But what he was talking about was the more they submit to Jesus, the more that they listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and submit to Jesus, the closer to him they become. And one thing you'll find is when you're walking closely with Jesus, when you are trying to live a life that's pleasing to him, your, the grace you experience in your life and the peace you experience in your life starts to increase. You'll see that. Has anybody ever noticed when you're drifting away from God, you just don't have any peace anymore? Has anybody ever felt that lack of peace and you can't even put your finger on why? Has anybody ever been there? Listen, it's happened to me. And almost every time, the reason I'm feeling that lack of peace is because I am drifting away from God. God never drifts away from us. We drift away from Him. And that was one of the things that I think is really important here. He was trying to let him know, listen, the closer you get to God, the more peace you will experience, the more of His grace you will have in your life. Now, here's the thing. If you're not spending time investing in your faith, which is what draws us closer to God, is investing in your faith. James tells us, draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you, Right? But it takes an investment of your time. It takes an investment of your efforts, right, to be able to invest in your relationship with God, invest in that faith relationship. But if you don't invest in it, you will use that time somewhere else. And I think that's one of the enemy's greatest ploys, right? Because investing in your faith looks like reading God's word and praying and, uh, you know, and serving God and worshiping. But if you're not doing those things regularly, the enemy will find something to fill that time. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but he always finds something that keeps you busier than you were before so that you don't have time to go back to worshiping and reading and things like that. And then you'll find yourself saying, I don't know if any of you have ever caught yourself saying this. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I just don't have time to read tonight. I just don't have time to pray about that right now. I just don't have time to go to church. I got so many things I got to do on Sundays. That's the enemy finding ways to fill the gap that you should be using to draw closer to God. And Peter didn't want that to happen. He wanted them to understand that, listen, if you stay close to him, you're going to become more confident, especially when you're struggling. You're going to become more confident because he's always going to come through for you. But those who don't invest that time, when they hit their struggles, a lot of times they just falter. And that's a sad situation. Peter's trying to avoid that from happening. Now, in verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter explains in depth, I mean, the most important part about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So look at this, Second Peter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Remember that. Uh, through the knowledge of him who called us by, uh, by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers. You might want to underscore this. Become partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature. 
Okay, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So first of all, I love what he says. First of all, he comes out and, and he says that it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we get these promises, that we get to uh, you know, trust that these promises are going to happen for us. Right? But the thing he's pointing to is it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ that you become a believer. John tells us that. John seventeen three, it says, This is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. That they may know you, the, uh, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, first and foremost, it's that knowledge is important because it's the knowledge of Jesus Christ that gets people saved. Okay? Now, the second thing is, when we trust Jesus for our eternal life, we are also becoming equipped. He's equipping us for something bigger. Look at this, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your what? Salvation. Your salvation. This is talking about being saved. Uh, having also believed, you were sealed in him with what? The Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So Peter saying that believers are equipped. The moment they believe, believers are equipped by becoming partakers of the divine nature. Now, the partakers of the divine nature was referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because the moment you believe, anyone believes, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's really important. And the Holy Spirit... You have to remember, this is the third part of the Godhead. When I say you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, a lot of people look at it like, uh, like uh, I can't explain, like some ghost coming in and out of their life. You know what I mean? Well, I feel the Spirit today, I don't feel the Spirit. The Spirit's with me, it's not with me. It is always with you. From the moment you believe, the Holy Spirit is with you. And it's powerful, just as powerful as God. He is a third part of the Trinity. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. That's what we know as the Godhead. Okay, so we, God equips us immediately by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit equips us to live a godly life and escape the corruptions of the world. This is what he was talking about, being a partaker in the divine nature. Everyone has the divine nature once you believe, but are you a partaker in it? Meaning, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you? Now, I don't think I have to tell you when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Has anybody here ever experienced a time where you just know the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to you? A lot of times it happens when he's telling you not to do something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or maybe that's just with me. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is in there to guide us. And the more we listen to that, the more we partake in that divine nature, the closer to God we become. The less we do that makes us get distracted and we start pulling away from God. And if you don't become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, people are saying, oh, then they're not saved. No, he's talking to saved people, right? But people who are not partakers of the Holy Spirit are people who are ignoring the guidance that comes from the Holy Spirit. And they start pulling away from God. Now, remember, we won't lose our salvation, but you can, we'll talk about this more in depth later, but you can lose your confidence and your assurance and your peace. Anybody know what I'm talking about, how you lose that when you're away from God? It's a cold, lonely feeling. And we'll talk about that, like I said, more in depth as we move on. But the most important thing is, is that we need to be in, in, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to have an effective ministry, because if we're not, we don't have it. Now, here's the thing that kind of bugs me. Have you ever heard people say, I just can't live the Christian life? Have you ever heard that? Listen, when I was growing up, that's what I thought. I could not live the Christian life, because the Christian life that was molded you know, into me, that they were trying to mold into me, was from a church that taught you had to basically be perfect. 
And I saw those people wearing their polyester and wingtips and, you know, not listening to music. And, and uh, I thought to myself, man, is that what a Christian is? I can't do that. I, I don't want to wear wingtips. <laughs> Ever. You know? I don't like polyester pants. You know I mean? <laughs> and the church I went to was a lot about works when I was growing up. So, I mean, you, had to, you couldn't listen to music. There's a lot of things you couldn't do. And I, I realized when I went to church, it was more about what you can't do than what you can. And it was more about punishment than blessing. So it, it was tough what I was growing up in. But I remember thinking I can't live the Christian life. And I hear people say that now. And I always tell them, you absolutely can live the Christian life. Because it's not about you. And it's not about what you're capable of, okay? We are equipped with the Holy Spirit, which means God has given us a path to success by giving us a piece of Him. And He's saying, I want you to succeed so much, I'm putting a part of me inside of you. And if you want to succeed, you'll listen to it, and you will succeed, if it's important to you. But a lot of times when people say, I can't live the Christian life, I think, well, is it that you can't live the Christian life or you don't want to? There's a big difference because he's given you the Holy Spirit to guide you to success in the Christian life if you listen to it. But if you're not listening to it, you've got to ask yourself, is it more important to me to have a good spiritual life or to have a good carnal life? What's more important to me? Being successful in the eyes of the world, being successful in the eyes of God. But we can't say we can't do it because he's given us a piece of him. Now, I've been trying to get to this part because Peter gets real specific here on how to, have spirit, how to be spiritually successful. So look at this, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If you're one of those people who underline, you've got a ton of it to do here. It says, now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, you can underscore that, in your faith, supply, you can underscore that, moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, that one stings, uh, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Okay, good. So in verses 5 through 7 and 5 through 8, Peter starts to really reveal what a character with Christian integrity looks like, spiritual integrity. He's saying you want to be successful, listen to the Holy Spirit and develop that character, a character of spiritual integrity. And we know that because he began verse 5 with the phrase, applying all diligence. The reason he did that is he wanted us to realize that having spiritual integrity is a choice. It doesn't just happen. You know, anybody, I don't know if you guys were taught this. When I first believed, they made it sound like when you believed immediately you were spiritual, you made right decisions, you were going to do everything good. You know, and when I got saved, I thought, wow, that, that isn't working. You know, <laughs> you have to make a decision every day. To live a godly life, to live a life that displays spiritual integrity. And we know that because in verse 5 he says, applying all diligence. Now, the phrase applying all diligence in the Greek, now see if you can write this down, spude arate is what they're saying in applying all diligence. And it means, uh, it means to, it's kind of strange how, let me see if I can say this without making it sound too confusing. It means to do one's best or to make every effort to do something or to try as hard as possible to do something. Okay, so applying all diligence doesn't mean, oh, I'll give it a shot. That didn't work. Like when you tell your kids to try something, you know what I mean? And they say, it doesn't work, I can't do it. They just not, don't want to. Applying all diligence means you are giving everything you have. And we're, he's saying here, if you want to have spiritual integrity, give it everything you have. Apply all diligence. 
right? Then he says, and in your faith, supply. Now, I told you to underscore supply for a reason. Because the Greek word that was translated supply in verse 5 is epihoragal, and it means to add, listen, this is really important, to add to something or to provide something in addition to what already exists. So when he was saying supply, he wasn't saying come up with something new. He was saying, I'm asking you to add something to something that already exists. And I'll explain that. I know that's a little wordy, but I'll explain that, right? He, wanted to, he chose that word because he wanted him to understand something. The moral excellence that God wants from you is in you. It's already there. You don't have to create it. You have to submit to the Holy Spirit and add to it. Supply a willing, a willing heart and someone who's willing to be what God wants you to be and become the spiritually excellent person that's already inside you. It already ex- exists inside of him. All right? Now, the Bible teaches believers over and over again that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit when we believe. I've said that many times. But all these qualities that he mentioned come from people who listen to that Holy Spirit. All right? You don't have to manufacture these things that bring spiritual integrity. Those seven things he listed, you already have them in you. You just have to access them. Right? You have to supply the willingness to learn those things. Right? This is really, really important. So Peter was saying here, embrace and apply the qualities the Holy Spirit inspires in you. Look at this, 2 Peter 5.8. For if these qualities are yours and are what? increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our lord jesus christ so basically peter said that believers with the qualities he listed will spiritually succeed right now you see the amazing people that we read about how many people here like to read (laughs) how many people like to watch movies no (laughs) just kidding I, I, lo- I really love to read a, a lot. I love leadership books. I love uh, books about, you know, church history. I'm kind of a nerd. I love books about the Greek culture. But anyway, um, one of the things I notice is people love to read about people who are spiritually successful. We love to read about them. We love to read about the person who beat the odds through prayer and defeated cancer. We love to read about the person who beat the odds of poverty by trusting in God and letting God lead them out. We love to read about the person who went into a foreign country and through his love led so many people. We love to read that stuff, don't we? And the reason we love to read it is because we're supposed to be doing it. That's why we love to read it. Because we are supposed to be doing those things but we're not applying all diligence, so this, those things aren't happening for us yet. But when we read in the Bible, sometimes we think, well, those people are just born better than me. You know, David, of course he could do it. He was born better than me. David made more mistakes than you'll ever dream of. Abraham. We, we read about Abraham, we think, oh, what a great man of faith. He must have been born that way. No, he was a pagan. And if you read about his whole life, he made as many mistakes as we do. The difference is that he was quick to repent, and he believed that God was going to use him to do something amazing, and he did. See, the difference between being a normal believer and being the world changers that we read about is that the world changers believe and practice the spiritual integrity that Peter's discussing, right? They depend on the Holy Spirit, and they listen to it, and that God does amazing things through them. The normal believer is content to watch others do it or read books about it. Now, I'm not telling you don't read inspirational books. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to get a, you know, get a call from Barnes & Noble here, but... I'm just saying, you can still read those books, but you should aspire to be someone those books could be written about. That would be more important. So one thing I wanted to do is let's take a look at this list of qualities that Peter mentioned. 
First, he said moral excellence. Moral excellence. This does not mean perfection. It's not what that means. Okay, in the Greek, it's the word erate, and it means excellence of character, providing an excellent character. See, as believers, we can't afford to have the selfish, uncaring nature of this world. There are a lot of Christians whose character is being molded after the world instead of after Jesus, and that's the problem we have right now. If there are people who will tell me, oh yeah, I've been a Christian, I, I've been a deacon at my church, and I wouldn't have known they loved Jesus if they hadn't told me, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. And I think that's because sometimes we don't realize we have to refute that, that character the world's trying to throw at us and accept the one that Jesus is trying to build in us. But have you ever noticed that it's real easy to start letting your character drift into a worldly area? And you start saying things that sound harsh and unloving and uncaring. And before you get all judgmental, have you ever said, I don't care what anybody thinks? Anybody ever said that? Or when somebody is questioning something about God, you're like, I don't care what they think. Who cares? That's their problem. You know, that's the character of the world starting to creep into our character. We can't allow that to happen. If you're going to have excellence of character, it means you have to love and serve like Jesus. Next thing he says is knowledge. In the Greek, this is the word gnosis, and it means what is known. In this context, what is known about God. Okay, so everything Christians believe and say and do should be guided by the knowledge of the Word of God. That's what it should be guided by, the knowledge of the Word of God. Right? And as a matter of fact, all these qualities are taught time and time again in the Bible if you're reading it. Okay? That's what he's trying to tell us. It's frustrating when Christian people live their lives based on emotions uh, and opinions and on uh, doctrines and, and, and denominations. That's, that's frustrating to me, especially those that, that can't prove what they believe. Right? You ever run into those people? They have crazy beliefs and they can't prove any of it. And then they come to me. I'll never forget. I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Um, I had somebody come up to me one time and they were telling me what they believed and it was out there, man. I mean, it was out there, right? And I told them, I said, can you prove that? And they said, can you prove different? The burden of proof's on you. And I'm going, I don't, I don't think that's how it works. I can prove that you shouldn't do that. Can you prove you should? You know what I mean? Well, it's, knowledge means understanding the word of God and believing it and applying it. Not understanding what your religion teaches or what your doctrine teaches. But it's just so frustrating to me because there's so many doctrines. I had someone ask me one time, why is it there's so many different denominations? Well, you know what? That's not a God thing. Denominations are not a God thing. Denominations exist because we like to be separatists. We like to believe what we like to believe and exclude everybody else. We like to think we're better than other people and other, uh, other denominations, so we create a denomination of our own. Right? It's not a God thing. Denominations are not a God thing. Okay, so remember, if you can't prove it in Scripture, don't believe it. The knowledge that you need is in the Scriptures. Now, the next one he said was self-control. And I shouldn't even preach on this one. So if you've seen me in traffic, I don't have it. But self-control is the Greek word uh, enkrateia, and it means to be able to control one's words and actions. (laughs) That's a struggle. How many people in here can control your words and actions? Raise your hands. Um, Oh, I'm going to have fun with you if you do. Let's be honest, how many people in here will say something and afterwards say, I can't believe I said that? How many people have done that? How many people do it in traffic? Anybody else? How about with all those things that set up on the highway? Anybody had some kind words about that? You know? I'm preaching on self-control. I'm preparing a message on self-control as I'm thinking, I'm just going to hit that barrel. i got a bar in front. You know what I mean? 
I mean, you know, I mean, they they made the flashing red light. Self-control should mean the pastor shouldn't be going, your turn, idiot. Not saying I did that. Just saying there might be a possibility I struggle with self-control on the road sometimes. But that's what it means being able to control your uh, your words and actions. And believers who can't control their words and actions are going to struggle. Now, we all have that every now and then. But if your life is marked by shooting off at the mouth and doing things impulsively without praying first, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have a life full of troubles. And I know every one of us in here has made a decision without praying before. Have you ever become, has it ever become blatantly obvious that I really should have prayed about that? Anybody? That's rough, isn't it? Well, this is what it's saying. Have some spiritual self-control. Spiritual self-control means can you afford it before you buy it? Should you say it before you say it? Should you want to hit barrels on a highway, make a decision? You know what I mean? There's, having that self-control is very, very, very important for us. Because people who lack self-control are the easiest targets for the devil. Right? These are the, excuse my French people. Right? These are the people who just know what they're doing is wrong. They just don't have the self-control to apply it. You're going to struggle. And we're all there every now and then. Okay, now he says, per, the next one he said was perseverance. Perseverance. In the Greek... It's hupomine, and it means steadfastness or able to endure. You ever hear the old saying, quitters never win? How many people have heard that? How many people have ever quit? No, I'm just kidding. That is true. It's 100% true. Quitters never win. And believers who give up or quit during their struggles will never realize the power of God. If you always want God to get you out of trouble instead of get you through trouble, you're never going to know God. Right? Because I never got to know who God really was until I was not completely on my back spiritually. Has anybody been there? You've been laid on your back spiritually? Your feet kicked right out from underneath you? And it seems like everything's falling in around you? And then God shows off for you. And he comes in and does the things you read about in other people's lives in your lives because you're finally at a point where you have to trust him. And now he shows you how amazing he really is. I love that because there are times that we have got to hang in there, even when things get rough and when the enemy's saying, look what God's done for you, here you are. Has he ever whispered that in your ear? Oh man, I can't tell you how many times. Some things are just going wrong and, and the enemy's going, wow, aren't you glad you've been serving him for over 25 years? That's working out really good for you, pastor. What jam are you in now? Did you hear what they said about you? See, the enemy wants you to quit when the struggles come. He didn't want you to have perseverance because he knows if you persevere, you will see God like you've never seen him before. You will experience him like you've never experienced him before. You will, it'll be like you can feel his touch. He gets so close to you. God is close to the brokenhearted. And until you're brokenhearted, you won't know that. And if you give up when you're brokenhearted, you'll never know that. That's what he meant by perseverance. I could preach on that all day. Uh, then he says godliness, which is eusebia in the Greek, and it means uh, a reverence toward God, meaning you love and respect God enough to let him impact your life. That's what that's talking about. Godliness just means that you're allowing God to influence your life. You're allowing him to make changes in your life. That's what he's talking about there. Then he says brotherly kindness. Anybody want to guess what the Greek word for this is? <laughs> Philadelphia. Yeah. It's the, it's the town that has the lesser team in Pennsylvania for football. It's the ugly younger brother, the real NFL team there. But um, Philadelphia gets its name 
from this Greek word, and it also gets its slogan, the city of brotherly love, from this Greek word, Philadelphia, is what this is talking about, okay? And what this literally means is love for one's fellow believer. This is talking about having a a kind of character that doesn't care just about yourself, but cares about the body of Christ and has a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And last, but certainly not least, I love this. He says love, and it's the Greek word. Anybody got a guess? Agape. Agape. Now, you've heard probably a million different ways to translate agape. I've, I've heard it described so many different ways. But literally, agape means to love someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard. That's what agape means. And the cool thing is about this word is in the New Testament, it's used two similar but different ways. It's used to describe the kind of fatherly love God has for us is agape love. And the kind of love that we should have for him as children should be agape love also. So that's how that's used. This is talking about this love based on sincere appreciation and a high regard for someone. So it's really, really important. So now I know he listed, you know, brotherly kindness and love and all that last, but they are not last. Okay. Actually, love and brotherly kindness. These are the, you know, godliness. These are the crux of every Christian ministry, every one of them, every Christian ministry, love has to be at the heart of it. If a believer doesn't have those three, the other four qualities he listed are worthless anyway. They have to be based on your love and brotherly kindness and uh, have to be based on that. Now, we've all experienced the Spirit, you know, directing us on how to behave or speak or respond at one time or another. We've all felt that. And for example, I want to bring this up. When we're mad or frustrated, have you ever noticed there's always two voices? Anybody ever notice that? Be thankful there's two. Be afraid when there's only one. Because if there's only one, you're usually ignoring God. Right? But there's usually two voices we hear when we get angry. One is telling us what we want to do and say. Right? And that is not the voice of the Spirit. That's the voice of our flesh speaking to us. And the Holy Spirit tells us what we should do and say. I need to get better at listening to Him in traffic i got to quit confessing that because no one here is going to ride with me. But it is true. Anyway, so I think a lot of times the problem is is we, we often surrender, you know, and accept the former rather than the latter. It just feels good sometimes to do what immediately comes to our heart and our mind, to tell them off. Does that ever feel good to you? You're all going, no, Pastor Greg. Yes, you do. Does it ever feel good to just hit that barrel that is in the wrong lane anyway? (laughs) Hypothetically. Yes, it would feel good. But I think we've gotten in the habit of just feeding our flesh and not listening to the Spirit. Too often I think we give in to what feels best to us because it feeds our pride and our thirst for vengeance when we do what feels good to us. It it just... brings us down a road we don't want to go into but those who accept the holy spirit's guidance you know they don't have to face any of that they don't have to face the shame that comes after you do something impulsive how many people have ever said something to someone you shouldn't have as a believer you felt guilty about it the next day you said i'm not calling them back because i was right and then the next day it's even heavier on you and you're going i know god might be wanting me to apologize but i don't think i should and the next day it's pressing heavier and you're going Maybe God wants, maybe I could say I'm kind of sorry. 
And then you get out of bed and you're down here and you're going, oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry, it's my fault. I'll, I'll, you know what I mean? That's what the Holy Spirit does. It will weigh you down until you see it His way. But people who actually listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they never have to worry about shame or apologizing because they're following God's advice that's placed inside of them. Okay, now 2 Peter 1.9. Trying to stay in my time frame here. It says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. I love this verse. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to make some people mad here, but that's how I roll. Okay, in verses 5 through 8, he talked about how important having the good qualities of spiritual integrity in our character is. He talked about how important that was. But now he wants to talk about the characteristics we shouldn't have, but we get when we ignore those, those spiritual integrity characteristics he asks us to have. He says that people who don't have those characteristics are blind and short-sighted. Okay, blind and short-sighted. Right? He even said that they have forgotten they were once purged of their old sins. Okay? I've had people come to me and say, well, if they were a real Christian, they wouldn't say that. Anybody ever hear that? Well, if they were a true Christian, they wouldn't wear that. Right? If they were a real Christian, they'd get a dose of salvation. It'd change that attitude. Anybody ever hear stuff like that? (laughs) The Bible says there are people, and these are the people who have not been listening to the Holy Spirit. These are people who have allowed their flesh to take them over. There are people out there that have forgotten they were purged of their old sins. Meaning they don't even have eyes of faith anymore. They don't even have that anymore. You know what I mean? They have pushed so far away and become so hard, they have forgotten the perspective God put in them the moment they believed. And I'm telling you what, I have met those people. And I have seen how hard their life becomes. But this is one of those things he warns against. He says, listen, there, you have got to make sure you're not blind and short-sighted, meaning blind to God's purpose for you and short-sighted about what your future is going to be is what he's talking about in God. But he's saying, if you're not careful, you're going to be a prince or a princess living like a pauper because God's not going to bless you. This means these people have forgotten that they are children of the king. These are the ones that walk around saying, I can't. Listen, anyone that's ever played for me knows I don't like those words. I can't. It should be I haven't yet. Not I can't. Because I've seen a passage that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? That's what I like to hear from people. Right? But when you allow yourself to drift so far away, you can actually get into this position where you have forgotten your once purged your old sin. But despite all this, notice something. Peter never questioned that believer's salvation. Not once. He said he must have forgotten he was once uh, cleansed of his old sins, but he never questions his salvation. Because one thing you have to remember, the power of God's grace always supersedes the weakness of human faith. Always. Right? If we had to do anything to stay saved, every one of us would go to hell. Every one of us. There is no one in here who lives a good enough life to please God in and of yourself and never will. There's never been anyone other than Jesus who led that kind of life. That's something we have to remember, right? We, it is what it is. So he never judges someone else's salvation because that's not his job. What he's trying to do is redirect them in the path that they're taking so that they can have a stronger character. That's what he's trying to do with them, 
right? And that's why I can't stand it when people judge whether someone's a real Christian or not. It's not your job to judge whether someone's saved or not. And here's the other thing. When you see someone doing or saying something and you say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. Listen, our salvation is not based on what we do and what we say. The Bible tells us time and time again, our salvation is not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 2 Timothy 1, 9. It says it time and time again in the Bible that our our salvation is not about our works. It's about what we believe, not what we do and say. And when we believe enough, when we trust Jesus for our eternal life, we have it. And when we believe enough that he can change our life to surrender to him, he will change our lives. That's what he does. He changes people's lives. But to just make this assumption that someone who isn't doing what you think a Christian should do means they're not a Christian, you are not God. And you cannot make that decision. You can't make that judgment. Because there are probably people who see what you do and think, I can't believe a Christian would do that. Like, have problems in traffic as we come back to that, right? Now, I want to finish on this because I don't want to leave you, you know, in a weird spot here. But um, you can't lose your salvation, but you do have to face discipline of God. And here's what happens when you, the farther away from God you get, you start noticing your prayer power go away. Have you ever had been so far from God that you don't even feel like, you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Anybody ever been there? It's a terrible feeling. Your assurance starts to fade, which means the confidence you had in Christ, he's like, I'm not going to let you feel confident until you make this right. Right? He won't allow that. The, you know, the, the closeness that you felt with God, when you could feel him moving, you can lose that. Those are things he does to try to draw you back. And last but not least, if you refuse, he can take your life. But that's extreme. I love how John describes the process of getting back into the will of God. No one's too far. 1 John 1, 6-9 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and what? And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, capital L, as he himself is in the light, capital L, we have fellowship with, the one, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the big one. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, so those people that honestly believe they don't sin, the Bible calls you a liar. You do sin. Okay? Uh, verse 9. Here's the big one. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful. I love this. Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? See, Peter knew that these people were not so far away from God. Even though they forgot they were once purged their old sins. They weren't too far away from God to be brought back. We just saw that. Right? All, they were a confession away from being right back into the will of God. The thing is, you've got to make up your mind. What do you want out of your salvation? I love, I love what this, uh, I think this is Zane Hodges said this. It's a quote I want to read. It says, All Christians have been given a royal summons by God himself, inviting them to the glorious privilege of co-reigning with Christ in the life to come. You know what that invitation is? The Holy Spirit. He's given us all the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is trying to direct us to where we can be co-heirs in the kingdom. It's trying to show us that path. So when we accept that invitation, we know we'll get to reign with him. I absolutely love that. Okay, now, I want to finish here. Second Peter 1, 10 and 11. It says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. All right, he's talking about the seven things we talked about, the moral excellence and all that. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance of the eternal kingdom, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, theologians love to argue over verses 10 and 11 because, again, they have more time than common sense. Okay, it's just one of the things I struggle with anymore is I feel like that we are training young men to be arguers, to be, you know, to take theological stances about doctrine and argue about ridiculous stuff that means nothing. We're answering questions no one is asking, and that's what happens here because people immediately see this where it says to make sure you're calling an election, and they say this is talking about election to salvation. It has nothing to do with that. If you want to make that debate, make it on something else because that would be completely and dramatically out of context. It's not what's talking about here. It's not make sure you're saved. They were all saved. He was writing to save people. That's not what he was saying. He's not saying, I'm calling you my brothers. Make sure you're saved. That makes absolutely no sense. The the context here is making sure a believer focuses on maintaining the qualities of spiritual integrity, right? Because those who have spiritual integrity will be rewarded by God. Okay, so I just think we have to remember something here. Okay, when when it says make sure if you're calling an election, it's not saying make sure you're saved. It's saying check yourself and see if you are becoming what God created you to be. Check your calling and election. What did God call you to do? Are you doing it? Are you even pursuing it? Are you looking into the matter? Or are you just content to ride the pew until the Lord comes back? That's what he was saying about that. That wasn't talking about checking to see if you were saved or not, making sure you're one of the elect or not. That has nothing to do with it. He was saying, since you're saved, since you're saved, check yourself. Do you live a life that shows people you love Jesus? Are you accomplishing what he's trying to accomplish in your life? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit that he placed inside you? If you are, your life should be changing. If your life's not changing, maybe you need to sit down and check that. Because maybe, just maybe you're not listening. That's what he was trying to, trying to you know, point him out to here. And so the big thing is, I think Peter believes that you know, when someone has, you know, has a character that's forged in the fires of faith, it doesn't mean that they've never faced difficulties. It means they've faced them and allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them out of them. That's what he's talking about. And he wanted to develop that in these young Christians. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads? If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation, a brief one. Uh, so if you're not sure where you stand with God or you just want prayer, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. But I'm not going to chase you down and talk to you. That's not what I do. Bless those people. I really pray for you, by the way. It's not something I just say. Bless those people. If you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. We will be praying for you. Believers, what Peter was telling them, God is telling us. We need to Listen to that divine nature that he placed in us the moment we believe. Because if there were more of that, the world wouldn't be where it is right now. And where it's headed right now. So listen, there are believers out there who haven't been listening. I'm going to pray we start. Because that's the only way we're going to see change. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the love and mercy and kindness that you've shown us. I just thank you, God, for your grace. God, it's, it's evident that we are never going to be perfect. We make mistakes all the time, and, and we sin every day. And it's so hard for me to believe that you could love people who constantly reject you. But you have the kind of love that is beyond anything we can imagine, so much so that you sent your son to die on a cross innocently so that we could have eternal life in him. 
So if there's someone that doesn't know you, God, we don't care what they've done, what people say they are, what their reputation is. Your word says the only thing that matters is what they believe about your son. If what they believe is that his death, burial, and resurrection guarantees their eternal life, you promise to give it to them. And if they believe that, I just pray they contact us today. We want to walk with them in their faith journey. But for those of us who are believers, God, please let us get back on the right track. Let us stop worrying about the wealth and the possessions and the positions. And let us remember that all this is going to be gone someday. And the only thing that's going to matter is the things we've done when listening to the whispers of the Holy Spirit you placed in us. Those are the things that will stand. Let us have a passion to serve you like you designed us to. As we leave here, God, we ask you to keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.